Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special Future Day edition... Aubrey de Grey talks about CRISPR for rejuvenation. But first up, here's the news. Nobody would have believed that strange plumes on Mars would only be seen by amateurs. A letter published this year in Nature tries out some alternative explanations for strange clouds on Mars. An extremely high altitude plume seen at Mars Morning Terminator. At dawn on the 12th of March 2012, huge masses of luminous cloud erupted from Mars. Over the next 11 days, they grew and changed shape from blobs to pillars and other shapes, eventually stretching up at an unexplainable 250 kilometres height. A dust storm was the simplest explanation, But Martian dust storms have never been known to stretch higher than 60 kilometres, and even then, only in rare funnel events. The clouds reflected the wrong wavelengths of light to be made of dust. And 250 kilometres is where the atmosphere becomes space. In the letter to Nature, astronomers from the University of Basque Country in Bilbao in Spain suggest that the plumes were made of ice. Either carbon dioxide or water vapour. But at that height, the Martian atmosphere is 100 degrees too hot for that to happen. And Martian ice clouds have never been seen floating above 100 kilometres. Their second suggestion is that the Martian auroras were observed. An aurora is when charged particles from the sun interact with the planet's magnetic field. This is what happens when you see an aurora on Earth. Mars does not have a planetary magnetic field, but it does have pockets of magnetism where auroras can sometimes be seen. The plumes were spotted above one such region. But, for the plumes to be so bright, the sun would have had to have been unusually active. And the sun wasn't that active. None of the spacecraft in orbit around Mars have seen any strangely high-altitude plumes. The next chance for amateur astronomers to have a good look at Mars will be in May 2016, when Mars is in opposition, appearing in the sky on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun. At midnight on the 12th of August, 
huge mass of luminous gas erupted from Mars and sped towards Earth. Across 200 million miles of void, invisibly hurtling towards us, came the first of the missiles that were to bring so much calamity to Earth. As I watched, there was another jet of gas. It was another missile, starting on its way. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Future Day encourages us to explore the possibilities about how the future is transforming us today and how to create the future we want to live in. Adam Ford is the Global Future Day convener. He organises conferences on science, technology and the future, such as the Singularity Summit Australia. And he's director of Humanity Plus Australia. Aubrey de Grey is the founder and executive director of SENS, Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence, an engineering approach to reversing the disease of ageing. Adam Ford spoke with Aubrey de Grey on Skype. And Adam began by asking Aubrey, why have a future day at all? This is a really important thing, a really necessary thing to do. It's incredibly easy for most people going about their daily lives just to forget that their daily lives may be very different in the future. And in particular, that their daily lives may be very much better in the future and therefore that anything that they can do today to make that future come sooner than it otherwise might would be in their interest. So, you know, that's really, to, me, to my mind, what Future Day is all about. It's, it's reawakening people who kind of know what people are doing to develop a better future, but who don't really pay enough attention to it from day to day. It gives people permission to think about the future. Now, one thing that ageing has going for it, perhaps to a greater extent than most aspects of radical visionary technology that people like you and me think about, is that it leans on an awful lot of technology that is making strides for other, perhaps simpler reasons. So, for example, in Science Research Foundation, we focus on applying regenerative medicine to aging. Well, we define regenerative medicine a bit broadly, of course, to include what you might call molecular regenerative medicine, as well as the traditional stuff like stem cells and tissue engineering that you hear about all the time. But the fact is, you do hear about it all the time. In the past 12 months, there have been enormous breakthroughs, as there are pretty much every 12 months these days, in getting stem cells to do more, in building artificial organs and such like. Uh, one other really enormous plank that the Science Research Foundation research program leans on, builds on, is gene therapy, the ability to manipulate the genomes of people who are already alive. And the ability to do that is still a little way off, no question, but we are enormously closer to it now than we were even 12 months ago, let alone 24 or 36 months, not least because of the enormously amazing technology called CRISPR, which I'm sure that most people in your audience have already heard of, but which is really going leaps and bounds. When it was first announced, it was already semi-miraculous, and it's been better ever since, both safety and versatility. Yeah, so, so for the benefit of those who don't know what CRISPR is, would you like to give it a rundown and its potential for regenerative medicine? So CRISPR has been called the adaptive immune system of bacteria. And what that means is that it's a system whereby bacteria can incorporate bits of their own infections, what are called bacteriophages, into their own genome 
as a way of triggering themselves to be able to destroy those sequences when they see them again. And the mechanism by which this material is safely, but nevertheless usefully, incorporated into the bacterial genome has recently been elucidated reasonably well, and we've figured out a way not only to make it work in mammalian cells, including human cells, but also to make it work rather more efficiently and technologically feasibly than it does in its natural environment. The result of that is that people have been able to create, you know, to create genetic modifications to cells much more easily and much more reliably than before. Now, at the beginning, when CRISPR shot to prominence, that was basically the whole story. But since that time, since it's pretty obvious what the potential therapeutic applications are, people have been working really hard to take it further forward. One thing that needed to happen was to make absolutely sure that the genetic modifications that CRISPR would make would be only the desired one, that there would not be what is often called off-target off effects. And there's been leaps and bounds, many labs, including, well, possibly the single lab that's done the most in this area is that of George Church, a member of our research advisory board, uh, who gave a keynote talk at our conference last August. But other labs also have been doing this. Another thing that's been happening, and this is also George's lab has been doing this, but many, many other labs as well, is increasing the range of applications to which CRISPR can be applied. Originally, the idea was that it could be used simply to make small genetic modifications, like changing one base pair or a few base pairs at a particular location. And the cool thing was that it could be really relied upon only to change the base pair at the location in question, the desired location, and that that desired location could be customized very easily. The idea of being able to make what are called site-specific modifications to the genome is not new. There are other techniques out there that do that, but those other techniques are much more cumbersome because they require new proteins to be designed for each target sequence. This doesn't require that. It only requires new sequence. So, so that's great. But then on top of that, there have been additional tricks that have been come up with, even to change RNA, to change the rate at which things get transcribed. One thing that actually I came across quite recently, because it's relevant to the way in which we want to rejuvenate the immune system, is a way in which one can use the RNAs that a human virus is creating as targets with which to destroy that virus. And this is important because it essentially enhances the ability of our immune system to really eliminate viruses. Some viruses are particularly difficult for the immune system naturally to get rid of. They'll suppress these viruses well, but only to the extent of driving them into a kind of latent, dormant state, which will reactivate periodically. And it turns out that that reactivation plays a big part in why our immune systems don't work so well when we get older. So if we can stop that happening by truly getting rid of these viruses, not even allowing them to survive in the latent form, then it's a big piece of progress. And the group at Stanford just very recently announced a first step towards that, again, using CRISPR. From my earlier reading in CRISPR, it was a, a beneficial technology to repair maybe some defects in, in the genome of embryos or like really early, early stage human development but yeah there didn't seem to be much in much described in the way of actually somatic gene therapy for people who are alive now but it seems to be the case that it this technique can be used both for correcting germline style genes uh, but also now somatic as well is that correct 
You, you got it, absolutely. Okay. Really, key thing here is it's all about safety. Gene therapy over the past 20, 25 years has been bubbling under there. You know, people have been working really hard to make it work because it would be terribly fancy, useful to, um, to be able to modify the genomes of people who are already alive. But the problem is that the viruses that people have been using to um, deliver these genes and to get them to integrate into our genomes and to do what we want them to do have not been 100% reliable in terms of only doing what we want them to do and not doing other things occasionally. And the thing is, they only have to do the wrong thing very occasionally in order to cause big problems, in particular in order to cause cancer. A lot of the difficulties that gene, therapies, gene therapy research has faced over the past 20 years have been around the risk of cancer. Now, CRISPR seems to be escaping that. We at Sense Research Foundation are actually, well, we have developed now actually mice which are potentially able to complement the CRISPR technology, and we hope to be using them in synergy with CRISPR very soon, at least in mice. Our work is doing something which CRISPR can't yet do, namely in incorporating large amounts of new DNA into the genome. When I say large, I mean your average way of doing things can only get a few kilobases in. We're talking about hundreds of kilobases. And that's actually a really important thing to be able to do for our purposes, because there are several of the sense therapies that will need incorporation of new DNA, new enzymes, for example, and we'd like to do them all at the same time. It would be really not very effective if we had to do them one at a time. So, yeah, so, so we'd like to do that, and it turns out that there's another technique using a different type of bacterial technology, which we've been able to customize for use in mice, and we hope that in combination with CRISPR, it's going to be extremely effective. And it's so good that uh, a lot of the SENS techniques seems to be able to work hand-in-hand hand with this uh, new developments in CRISPR, and I'm very glad to hear about that. Is there any other progress in SENS that has been, that, that, that's been made in the last couple of years since last we spoke? Yeah, we've, been, we've definitely been accelerating. A number of our projects have been going for several years now, and that's how long it takes to get really significant results, and sure enough, those significant results are now materialising. So, around about the time I spoke to you last, I forget whether it was before or after, so I will include this one, we were able to demonstrate that cells in culture could be protected from a molecule called 7-ketocholesterol, which is actually the number one toxic molecule that drives the progression of atherosclerosis, so this is the number one killer in the Western world. We were able to identify some bacteria that could break down 7-ketocholesterol, and then we were able to identify the genes and enzymes that they use to do that, and then the third step, which was the really hard part that we managed to get working two years ago, was to modify that gene so that we could put it into a human cell such that the human cell would be protected. The enzyme would be produced and it would be directly, would be targeted to the right part of the cell called the lysosome so that the cell would keep working even in the presence of a quantity of this nasty molecule that would normally be fatal. It was a very clean, decisive result and got published in a nice journal. And since then, of course, we've been moving on towards trying to get that to work in other cell types and eventually in mice. It's slow work, research is difficult, but we're getting there. Much more recently, I'm going to say six or eight months ago, we were, had a big breakthrough, probably our single highest profile paper yet in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, 
where we showed that antibodies could be created which would actually chop up a nasty protein that forms amyloid in the heart. This protein is called transthyretin and it's famous for causing amyloid at an early age in families that have a mutant form of the gene for it. But in normal people that have the normal form of the gene, nevertheless in old age, especially in extremely old age, over 100, over 105, it turns out that this particular protein forms amyloid, very like the senile plaques in the brain, but that's a different protein, of course. And this amyloid impairs the function of the heart, and it seems to be responsible for a high proportion of deaths in extremely old age. So it's extremely nice to hear that we've been able to generate antibodies which don't just bind to this stuff, they actually chop it up. They're proteolytic antibodies. And we were able to publish very clear proof of concept of that in JBC about uh, six or eight months ago. Since then, other projects have been moving on. Uh, I can't talk about them in such detail because this work hasn't been published yet, but suffice to say that our, our single longest standing project, which is to make mutations in the mitochondrial DNA um, harmless by making backup copies of the mitochondrial DNA in the nucleus. That's an area where we've been frustrated for a long time, but we've made very nice progress over the past six months or so. And I think I can certainly say at this point that we are a good deal closer to making that really work than anyone's ever been before. So I'm not um, making any promises about timeframes yet, but I'm pretty happy about how that's going. Well, that certainly sounds like an amazing accomplishment. All, all, all these breakthroughs you guys at SENS are making are doing things that I can't really begin to describe how important and impactful they'll be today, but also when they're realised. I mean, today, in a sense, it wakes up people to the idea that these sorts of problems aren't insoluble, but also in the future when we can engineer this sort of thing, it's, just, it's off the scale in terms of the beneficial impact it'll have on humanity. So I'm very excited about the research you're doing there. Talking about the future, let's let's talk about the past. What did regenerative medicine look like, let's say, 35 years ago? I think it's fair to say that 35 years ago, regenerative medicine didn't exist at all. The beginning of regenerative medicine was probably, well, I mean, of course, you can define that in many ways. One reasonably defensible way to define it would be when Irving Weissman at Stanford discovered hematopoietic stem cells, blood stem cells. And I think that was actually, even that was less than 35 years ago, though I don't, don't quote me on that. But, you know, it took an awfully long time to get even bone marrow transplants to work reasonably well. And we've still got some way to go there. Um, it was a very long time before we discovered other types of stem cell, especially more primitive ones like embryonic stem cells and uh, mesenchymal stem cells in human beings or in other mammals. And it's still, a, we've still got a long way to go before we can really say that we can do exactly what we like with stem cells. The situation with tissue engineering, I would say, is even stronger. Tissue engineering kind of existed 20 years ago, 25 years ago, but it had a kind of false start. People got very excited about the ability to grow, the possibility of growing artificial organs. And actually, tissue engineering went commercial rather early in its scientific development. In hindsight, we now appreciate that it went commercial a good deal too early because a lot of people put money in and lost it. 
But luckily, the science has moved on anyway, and the commercial interest in that area has revived, as it should have done, because the science is ready for it now. So, you know, we're in a very different world now. But yeah, 35 years ago, it was a twinkle in people's eye. What will regenerative medicine look like, and who will benefit from it in 35 years? Well, one thing that you'll notice from my earlier replies is that advances that are happening in all of these areas are not just making us better at things, but making us better at more things. In other words, it's both the breadth and the depth of this technology that's increasing all the time. And that's rather important to take into account and look into the future, because, of course, what we'd like to be able to do is to apply regenerative medicine to the problems of aging. In other words, to develop what we like to call rejuvenation biotechnologies, rejuvenation simply being defined as regeneration of damage, repair of damage caused by aging. And uh, it's looking like it's, it's going to happen. I still think that we are on track to develop all of the various sense technologies that we've been working on for a while within the next couple of decades. I don't think we've been going as fast as we could have done if there had been only science to worry about. In other words, the lack of funding has definitely slowed things down. I would say over the past 10 years, it's probably slowed things down by maybe a factor of three. So we've made only three years progress in the past 10 years. But still, you know, that's a good deal better than nothing. I think that if we keep this up, that every step that we make will get people more encouraged about what's going on, increase the credibility and the belief in all of this. And so money will, will become less and less of a, of a barrier. Yeah, so I would say that at this point, I think we've got at least a 50-50 chance of developing all of these technologies and bringing aging truly under the control of regenerative medicine and its associated technologies within the next 20 or 25 years. Now, as I've always said, even from 10 years ago, that is an extraordinarily speculative time frame prediction. I certainly think there's at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years if we hit a million different problems that we haven't thought of and encountered yet. But still, so what really? You know, a 50-50 chance is quite enough to be worth fighting for. Absolutely. Definitely worth working towards. Future Day is often thought of as, you know, a celebration. It's also about education and about, like, increasing economy of attention on the importance of foresight. So, yeah, what, what can we do to integrate critical thinking, thinking about matters of import, strategic forecasting into, into, into education? Simply, I say that the overwhelming majority of society do not apply a sense of proportion to the question of aging. They will say, oh, well, you know, if we were to defeat aging, we might create these new problems, or they might equally say, if we allocate resources to trying to defeat aging, that will take resources away from things like defeating malaria in sub-Saharan Africa and so on. And of course these things are true, but people then, people kind of stop there and they don't go on and do the absolutely vital next step of asking how true these things are. How much would the um, amount of resources available to treat malaria in sub-Saharan Africa actually be reduced by adding an extra zero to the amount of money put into trying to defeat aging? The answer is probably infinitesimally, simply because the money comes from different places and people fund it for different reasons and so on. If we ask the question, what about these problems that might be created? People are 
very, very prone to come up with potential problems and then immediately to shut their brains off and not actually think about the opportunities that might be available to avoid those problems or to solve them, or even the possibility that the problem might actually occur and not be soluble, but it might be considered to be the lesser of two evils relative to the problem we have today of every of 100,000 people a day dying after a long period of decline and decrepitude and disease and general misery. So, you know, to my mind, that's the kind of critical and rational thinking that is overwhelmingly most seriously missing, at least insofar as the topic is future day. Well, it's been wonderful to chat to you again, Aubrey. First of all, I want to congratulate you and many of your colleagues for coming together and creating Future Day in the first place. It's not something that I wish to spearhead, so I'm very pleased to be joining the crowd of people, especially prominent people, who are supporting this. And I also want to say that I will be tracking it afterwards, and I think everyone needs to track it. You don't need to just get online and read the media and so on on the day itself, but actually try to maintain momentum after that. Everyone who is in general, you know, supportive of visionary technology being pursued more aggressively and to the greater benefit of humanity is, you know, has a kind of duty to actually do that, to actually not just one day a year, but actually every day of the year to make a contribution to maintaining an increasing momentum, increasing resources that are available to this and just generally making it happen sooner. Well, it's been a pleasure and I'm certainly tracking what you've been doing there at SENS. But thanks so much for being part of Future Day, Aubrey. It's been a real pleasure. And I uh, certainly do, for my own vested interests, uh, and everybody, <laughs> uh, wish you all the best in future development at SENS. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful experience chatting with you thank today. You. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Future Day convener Adam Ford talking with Aubrey de Grey of Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. Sens, who is working hard to keep us all healthier for longer. I'll embed the full unedited video conversation on the Future Day episode page on www.diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know that you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Kringai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links and videos about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
And to take us out, here's some more of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one. But still, they come. Yes, the chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. of anything coming from Mars are a million to one but still they come